The OCD and Anxiety Podcast by Robert James Coaching. Hello and welcome to the OCD and Anxiety Podcast, where we explore how to have a more positive relationship with anxiety disorders, taking back control so that you can start living the life you choose and not the one chosen by your fears. Hello and welcome to episode 67. I hope you guys are doing well and are getting into that spring mood. Now, if you are struggling with OCD and anxiety, you can get a free session from me. All you need to do to get that is to head over to my website, www.robertjamescoaching.com. And there you can send me a message and we can sort out the free session. So on with the podcast. Today, I interview the amazing OCD specialist, Paul McCarroll. Paul is a licensed professional and OCD specialist with lived experience of OCD, which really comes across in uh, just about everything he has to say in this interview. To get in touch with Paul, you can find him on Instagram um, at be free from OCD. That's at be free from OCD. And if you want to head over to his website, um, you can find him at www.befreefromocd.com. I hope you enjoy it today. And as always, if you do have any questions, then do please let me know. And many thanks. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Um, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Thanks for having me. That's great to have you on. So to start off with, can you just tell us um, a little bit about yourself, please? No problem, Rob. My name is Paul McCarroll, based here in Belfast in the north of Ireland. Um, I would describe myself as, a, as an OCD specialist. Um, I help clients to stop struggling and start living. Um, I've had my own lived experience of OCD. I know how challenging and debilitating it can be, but I also know that there's hope for us all and that we can get to a place of where we can begin to live life and do things which are meaningful for us. Um, and probably my story, I'm sure at some point, Rob, um, we will get into. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, it is, uh, if you if you have struggled with OCD, uh, as you have, then, uh, you know, I can I can see why that would influence your decision to obviously, you know, start a career uh, as a as a therapist specializing in in OCD. And, um could you tell us then a little bit about your your story there with 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 OCD? How did it? When, when did you kind of first start struggling with it? Absolutely, Rob. Well, for me, um, my sort of mental health journey sort of began in teenage years, adolescence. Um, as we said briefly off air, Rob. I mean, I was blessed with a, a really good childhood, uh, a very working class family, very supportive. Um, my sort of issues seemed to began when I when I went to a quite an academic grammar school, um, which which had a lot of a lot of positives in terms of you know actually academia and trying to sort of get the best out of you. But I actually personally found it nearly too challenging for me. Um, this seemed to then develop some sort of you know mental health issues and a bit of stress and burnout. But things started to sort of you know get really really difficult for me when I 
in hindsight, looking back at it now, what I was getting was a lot of intrusive thoughts and a lot of thoughts that by what I did or didn't do or what I think or didn't think could potentially cause harm to myself or others. Um, I had a lot of stuff around numbers and like things having to be arranged in certain ways. Um, I've been uh, very uh, brought up a, you know, a Christian background and you would think that the number three would be something um, synonymous with good. The way my mind was looking at number three and any sort of numbers, like six, nine multiples of three as like a dangerous, scary thing. Um, and in truth, as we even mentioned off air, Rob, I found it very difficult to talk about. I mean, this, I, I'm 34 now. I mean, so this was, you're talking, you know, they got up to 20 years ago. Mental health wasn't talked about the same. If it was, there was a lot larger stigma around it. So it was something I found very difficult to talk about. Um, in truth, and that's me just being 100% authentic, it took a, a hospital admission for me to really, A, get diagnosed, and B, mm. to get the right support that I needed to sort of try and get back on my feet again. Yeah. Um, and it's been a journey, Rob, and I know that yourself, you've been through your, your own journey. Um, but I suppose that's, that's the, it almost took me to hit rock bottom. Um, I know that doesn't have to happen, and I hope that it doesn't have to happen for anybody else. But for me, it really took to hit rock bottom to get the support that I need and started to get my, my life um, back on track again. Um, ironically, as we said as well, I, I now work, uh, I do mental health training also, and I work in the same hospital where I, where I was once a patient. Yeah, wow. I mean, that must have been incredibly challenging. So were you at a pretty young age then when you had to go to, to the hospital? So my sort of mental health challenges began, Rob, about 15. Um, this went on for about two years. So I was mm. sort of at homeschooling, sort of trying to manage this as best as I could. Um, without really, you know, like, it's not like today where we had access to the internet, access to Google, which, of course, as we know, can be pro con. But at the time, there were no real resources for me to sort of manage this, apart from a really supportive family and really supportive friends. Mm. Um, so... Things began just to deteriorate over those couple of years I did, which you're probably familiar with, Rob, as well. I would have been in contact with the, the child and adolescent mental health services. Um, in hindsight, probably where I went wrong in terms of, you know, availing of support was I wasn't very open and wasn't really, uh, I didn't feel capable at that time to talk about what was going on for me. I had a real fear of stigma, a real fear of being judged. Um, yeah. and obviously you know probably made it difficult to be diagnosed at the time uh, so it, it, went, it went on for for a number of years Robin has said probably came to head really when I was about 17 when I was eventually admitted to um, a psychiatric hospital somewhere where I spent eight weeks um, really helped me to get back on my feet uh, I, I was as one person said incredibly unwell um, but thankfully, I seemed to, to get a medication that really worked for me. Um, I liaised with a psychologist who really seemed to understand my issues. I felt more open um, and able to chat about what was going on for me. And really, when I left hospital, that was the sort of almost a light bulb went off for me, Rob. I started to really think about, okay. This is where I'm at now, which was at the same time an incredibly challenging place with 18, not a qualification to my name, um, not knowing where I'm going to go. 
but within me I had a, a drive to to get better to get well and to make something of my life and that's I suppose where my where my real recovery journey began at, at 18 years of age yeah 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 yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's inspiring that you were able to, you know, you were able to find out then what the problem was and to, you know, to start getting the right kind of treatment. It sounds like actually, you know, once you were in the hospital and you you had access to, you know, the right care and, and medication that was helpful, you were clearly able to, to make quite a bit of progress at that time and come to a place where, you know, you realized that you could overcome this problem, you know, that it was going to be a challenge that you could, uh, but you could do it. And having that realization, I think, is really, really important. Absolutely, Rob. And for some people, it doesn't have to take uh, a hospital admission. I know that you in your own journey, and I've talked openly about it, you know, that's not the, the route that you took. For me, I think it was incredibly beneficial and it gave me an opportunity, I suppose, in those eight weeks me a bit of peace i suppose because for me I had a lot of intrusive obsessive thoughts which were incessant which never stopped um and as we all know with ocd that that is a big hallmark of the problem that incessant nature of these intrusive thoughts and almost getting that break getting the right support being put on a medication that worked and i suppose the way i look at medication rob um it's a really good analogy i heard from dr jeffrey Swartz's book brain Lock. And he talks about medication as almost like, you know, armbands or water wings that when you're actually learning to swim, whether you're an adult or a kid, what that does is help you to stay afloat while you get more confident in yourself and then begin to learn the skills of self-help and recovery that can help you to manage this problem. And that's the way I look at medication. Again, mm. Rob, it's not for everybody. Um, yeah. But I yeah. think for me, it helped me to get me back on my feet again. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. That's... I completely agree. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, a great way to put it. A great analogy there, uh, Jeffrey Schwartz. You know, really interesting, uh, really interesting guy. Um, you know, like that. I, I love that book. I think it's fascinating. Um, someone I was I was speaking to someone about this the other day though, and they were saying that some of the uh, some of the advice in that book is a bit outdated now. You know, like. Um, this idea because obviously you have the four steps you now in his in his method in that book and one of the steps is to uh to, to label um and i think he suggests yeah. saying something like you know it's not me it's the ocd um which yeah. is it's quite tricky uh, because you you know potentially you are kind of pushing away the ocd by saying that no and it's uh so I don't know if it's still regarded as as top advice. However, the the idea behind it, I, I think, is still correct. It's just the language that you use. I think Absolutely. we need to be careful with. No, one hundred percent, Robert. I agree with you completely. And it's something which, for a while uh, in my journey, I used as almost like a a second Bible, um, because. For me, I was looking at a sort of answer. I've always been someone who, probably initially a bit skeptical, skeptical, but I think the the scientific research behind brain lock and the fact that um, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz was very interested in neuroscience and from a very you know established center in the uh, UCLA in Berkeley, California, you know, I said right, let's give this a go. And for me, it was one of the the first 
books, one of the first sort of um, research-based models, which really answered the question for me, like, that this isn't just completely in my head, that maybe there's some sort of biological component to this. And I suppose the way I sort of interpreted it, not that there was anything wrong with me, but almost that this idea of, you know, like a lot of false alarms going off, a lot of false messages showing up, um, and this idea of refocusing, of recognizing that, look, I don't have to give this time and attention to these difficult thoughts and feelings. Instead, yeah. I can refocus my attention on something more wholesome. And over time, I really like that idea that as you do that, you're almost helping the brain to work better. You know, they use that analogy in the book, which I think is a great analogy. You know, you think of a gear shift when you're driving. You know, yeah. most people, most of the time, if they have a thought which is a little bit silly or a little bit weird, it sort of comes and it, they just get on with their day. You know, they recognize that it's silly or weird, but they just yeah. try as best as they can to move on. Yeah. With OCD, it's almost like you get stuck in gear. The thought hangs around. Mm. Um, and in my experience, what the refocus part of that four-step model was very useful for was it helped me to get my attention off of myself and mm. to move on. Um, because what you generally find, that it must be your experience as well, Rob, that when you do refocus initially, you know, the thought doesn't magically go away still yeah. have that feeling that something is wrong or that something isn't yeah. right yeah but over time you're helping that sort of alarm signal that almost error message to sort of diminish and die yeah. down to calm and like down you said, I, agree with you, I think mm. absolutely absolutely yeah. i think there's a bit of a updated or sorry outdated sort of wording um but it's something in a it's probably in a more indirect way, which uh, which I do work with and um, still with clients. And it's something which, you know, even if you don't follow all four steps, just sort of recognizing that, you know, you don't have to give these thoughts your full attention and maybe mm. directing attention yeah. elsewhere. But I think, like you said, Rob, which you have to be careful with is also we don't want to advocate, okay, let's just distract yourself because that's a bit like, you know, putting a ball underwater when you're down at the sea. It's just going to bounce back yeah. up and absolutely the absolutely yeah, yeah there is i mean and also you know the whole that whole full step um four step method from brain lock is you know very related to act and i know we were discussing act uh, a little bit absolutely. before we started this conversation and you know there are huge parallels between the two and and but it is it is a real um problem i think with this kind of model that you do need to be very careful refocusing is gently refocusing it is the way you know and doing that you know as yeah. much as you can in a mindful way and avoiding that kind of forcing that forcing no i'm not going to think about this is that's the beach ball effect you were just talking about no and uh, that can just 100 yeah and the the other thing whilst we're talking about uh, jeffrey schwartz is um i wanted to mention as well he wrote uh, another book that i found incredibly helpful um, and this was, this was for me, I read this maybe, you know, 12, 13 years ago. I can't remember the exact name now, but it was, um, you know, it was one of the first books about neuroplasticity and when they were kind of researching that yes. and, uh, you know, as, as he's very, you know, he's a guy who's uh, a neuroscientist. And so obviously he's interested in all these kind of different areas. And for me, that book was very helpful because for a long time, 
I felt like, you know, like this is a problem that I'm stuck with forever, that I can't overcome this, that, you know, that the, the brain, once, once you're an adult, is, is static, it's not going to change, that you, however you think and feel, you know, that's what you're going to be stuck with forever. Um, and, you know, when I came across his book and then a few others around neuroplasticity and this kind of idea that, you know, however you're thinking right now is, is changeable, is malleable, that you can change it. You know, whatever you tend to focus your attention on, you know, you will be, uh, build up neuropathways for that in your brain. So if you're constantly focused on, you know, your obsessions and then ruminating about them, then you're creating stronger neuropathways for, for, for those because of neuroplasticity. But likewise, also, if you start to focus more on mindfulness, you start to be more in the present moment, you, uh, you know, Absolutely. you build that acceptance, you also build the neuropathways for that. And when I was reading about that, I was just like, wow, this is, this is, you know, some of the most hopeful information that I've come across. It made such a huge difference to how I, to how I felt. And I think understanding that is really, really important. Couldn't agree more, Rob. And I think what it helps to do is, you know, that um, a lot of people can have that sort of stuck feeling and almost feel like resigned that this is going to be what they're going to have for the rest of their days. That neuroplasticity model and the research that's come out, you know, as you said, previously people thought that whatever you had in terms of you were born, that's what you had. And that's, the, you're going to think that way and feel that way to the day you die. But this whole neuroplasticity model is actually, no, it's changeable and things that can get better. And I mean, it's, it's, it's been my personal and honest view that there has been rituals and behaviors that I used to do which I no longer do anymore because I think over time I have actually managed to improve that part of the brain which was sending all those intrusive difficult obsessive unwanted thoughts you know do I still get unwanted thoughts sometimes yes do I still get compulsive urges sometimes yes do I respond to them in the same manner no you know I think for me you know, the, the honesty and the transparency that I sort of try and show clients is like the number one question, Rob, and I'm sure you get this all the time is, can I cure OCD? Mm. Will, it, will, it, will it leave me completely? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> as best as I can, I try and answer that in a, in, a, in a positive and motivational sort of way because obviously um, the way I sort of try and look at it is that even if the difficult thoughts or the urges don't go away completely, they don't have to stop you from living your best. You know, and part of that is learning to take the power, take the sting out of these difficult thoughts and feelings to sort of lessen the intensity of these urges that you can choose what you want to do in any, any given moment. You know, and I think that that's the real liberation that even if a difficult thought shows up, or an urge shows up that you still have a choice in terms of previously, you know, you have to follow exactly what that thought says a bit like a, a puppet on a string, you know, whereas actually, no, I can have a thought, but I also can choose to do something which is more aligned with what I care about. Mm. Um, and of course that doesn't happen overnight, but it's something which is really, really achievable. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the more you do it, you know, every time, this is what I like to remind people is that every time you make that choice, you know, as you just kind of mentioned that word, which I think is, you know, there's certain words, what I think are just incredibly important towards, you know, like getting to a better place with OCD and anxiety and acceptance is one, you know, choice is another commitment is another but like yeah i think this like uh this this choice is incredibly powerful where you realize okay i i don't have to be a slave to this thought you know i do have an option here and you know and every time that you do make that that positive choice which isn't always easy and actually sometimes particularly when you're just kind of starting out with this kind of approach it can feel like almost impossible. Like maybe you managed to make the positive choice for a moment or two, but then, you know, like maybe you don't because it, the thought is straight, so strong. But each time that you do, you're building that muscle and your brain remembers it. And so over time, when you keep doing it, that neuroplasticity kicks in. And, you know, as, as you were just talking about, you can change your the way that you do respond to the thoughts you can change your rituals you can stop performing them because it's just not a habit anymore so yeah it's uh it's it's really powerful stuff i'm just checking rob as well i have just changed the the audio technology here i've got my airpods and can you hear me okay yeah 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 um so yeah rob and i think that's the i think that's the key to a lot of this work, which um, both you and I have discussed, you know, CBT is incredible, incredibly useful, especially the exposure response prevention part of mm. the model. I think where I differ both personally and professionally is that I find the, the cognitive element of the model a little more challenging and a little bit more unrealistic in terms of managing OCD, this idea of trying to challenge, rationalize, try and to continually look for the alternative to a situation. I think in the short term, it can be helpful, but as I will always say to clients, you know, if you go and learn Spanish, you're not going to forget English. You know, so what I mean by that is that even if I go and take a positive thinking course, even if I learn how to think differently, it doesn't stop some of these intrusive, difficult thoughts from showing up sometimes. Mm. So really, you know, that sort of mindful acceptance way, Rob, as you discussed, is more about this change, how we respond to the thought as opposed to changing the thought itself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I think, um, you know, it's difficult because you can't, what you can't do is you can't kind of control the thoughts. We know that. Um, yeah. and you know, if we, if we try to do that through, through kind of arguing with the thoughts, trying to potentially prove them wrong, um, you know, it's, it's a really, really slippery slope, I think with, with OCD and what I like to do myself, if I am struggling with something, you know, something comes up that catches me out with OCD and, and I say this to, to clients as well, it's like, if something if something comes up then you know fine of course you can think about it um but once you've thought about it and you've come to a conclusion about it you know you you don't need to revisit that 
you know, if it's if, if you've really thought about something and you've come to a conclusion, you know, any doubt that comes up about that is just something trying to get you to ruminate, something trying to get you to perform a compulsion. Because actually, you know, that kind of that kind of doubt, that kind of thought process where you're having to go over it again is just reassurance seeking. You know, you're looking for more reassurance, uh, which is a classic compulsion. And so, yeah, I, I really agree that the kind of cognitive stuff for, for um, OCD can be actually counterproductive, you know? And so yeah. this is why I think maybe like writing things down and then saying, okay, I'm drawing a line under it now and any uncertainty I get about this is a chance for real life exposure, you know? And doing stuff like that is maybe more helpful. What do you think? Again, I, I agree with you, you know, wholeheartedly, Rob. And I think, obviously, as you and I have mentioned, that within uh, the sort of act, the acceptance of commitment therapy, or sometimes mm. it's known as acceptance of commitment training, um, within that work and within that model, you know, there are some exercises which can help you get a wee bit of distance, get you a wee bit of wiggle room from these difficult thoughts and feelings. Because I think with mm. a lot of clients that I show with, and even in my own life, the difficulty is, you know, almost like those sort of old alien movies and you have those sort of like baby aliens. It's like when they're stuck on your face, you know, when they're like, that's all you can see, you know, and it's very difficult for clients when I'm you know, initially saying, or if someone at times very erroneously is saying, don't think about it, you know, and they're sort of saying, well, like, it's right on top of me. So that's all I can think about. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So really, I think the 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 work, and I'm sure that Robbie you would probably agree with, is you know, a it's which I think was a very good point that you mentioned is first of all validating the experience that it's okay to feel that it's okay to think that because we're not trying to run away from this stuff because it showed up, you know, you didn't ask for it, didn't want it, but it's there. So we first have to acknowledge that, but we also have to have we also have to recognize that we have a choice whether we give it our time or energy or attention. You know, so I know at the beginning we talked about brain lock and the four-step model. Primarily, I've sort of distilled that down to almost a two-step model where it's acknowledge and refocus. So you're choosing, you've acknowledged that, okay, this is what I'm feeling, this is what's going on for me. But if it's not useful, if it's not helpful, I can almost let those difficult thoughts and feelings play like a radio in the background. But I tune into... Um, what what's important for me yeah 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 yeah. I think that's that's you know spot on you know cl like kind of classic diffusion really and uh I like the fact Absolutely. that you that you use tune in as well you know like uh using the analogy from at which is uh you know I think it's from the happiness trap where he has like you know the uh radio doom and gloom you know or like exactly. the, that's the kind of Hold on, kind of like Donald Trump, you know, fake news radio. It's just, you know, constantly blaring, you know, news in the background. And you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, good one. Thanks for that. You know, and uh, the thoughts keep coming up. and But you kind of don't stop. You just kind of carry on with your day. You know, each time one of those things come up, you just acknowledge, oh, yeah, it's another piece of fake news. I'm just going to I'm just going to refocus my attention on the present and whatever I'm doing and what I value in this situation. So, yeah. And you couldn't, uh, personally, Rob, I mean, you couldn't have said that any better because what, what that, what you're, again, almost from a neuroplasticity point of view, what you're beginning to then do is when you're 
seeing it as Donald Trump or you're seeing it as someone who, you know, you don't really admire or seeing it as just radio doom and gloom, you know, over time, it's helping you to make better choices and it's helping you to, as you say, tune in to thoughts which are helpful. You know, mm. I see the mind, it's often been described as that, you know, thoughts, they're not your friend, but they're not your enemy either. So sometimes thinking is incredibly useful. You know, there would be no such thing as Zoom. There would be no internet. There'd be no pieces of art. There'd be no Eiffel Towers. There'd be no really creative pieces of beauty if we didn't have this incredible mind that can think. But sometimes this thinking can become really irrational, really erroneous, really obsessive, really unuseful, really unhelpful. So I think, you know, my analogy, which I like to use the clients, very similar to the Russ Harris and the happiness trap and radio doom and gloom is, you know, if a thought's helpful, tune in, pay attention to it, let it guide what you do. But if it's not, let's try as best as we can. You know, almost if you're out for a meal with the family and maybe there's a, a table over there, which is very loud, you know, or the radio is playing in the background and a song that you don't like. You can choose to just pay attention on your meal and have a chat with your family. It doesn't make that other stuff go away, which yeah. is a, a good distinction to make. Yeah, you know? I, I love but that. You yeah. can then realize you can. Yeah. Sorry, I go think, ahead, Rob. No, I think you're spot on. And and it's, uh, yeah, that, that approach from Russ Harris is one that I employ a lot, actually. And, um, you know, I talk, I've talked about it quite a lot on the podcast because I think, um, you know, with OCD, a lot of people ask me this question, like, you know, how do I know if this is, you know, an obsessive thought or not? Like, how, how do I know if this is, you know, if this is something that I should stop thinking about or, you know, like, or if it's, um, you know, what if it's, it's um, I'm saying not to think about it and it's not an obsession or, you know, people are really concerned about this. And, and so, yeah, I, I really agree. The best thing that you can often say in that situation is to give up looking for that certainty as to whether it's, uh, you know, an obsessive thought or part of the OCD or not. Because again, that's just the, OC, the OCD side of you coming out, looking for that perfection, looking for that certainty. Yeah, this is definitely OCD, I have to stop this, or this definitely isn't OCD, you know, so it's better to ask, is this helpful or not? Because you can quickly ascertain, like, you know, if it's unhelpful, like, are you, are you getting stressy? Are you holding your shoulders tight? Yeah. You know, are you like, yeah. no longer in the moment? Are you googling like this information? You know, if you're doing any of those kind of things, you know, then and you're not engaging with the people around you, you're not focusing on your values in that moment, then it probably isn't helpful, you know, and it's a pretty good indication. And so, you know, you can potentially yeah. do something else instead. And I think, Rob, I mean, when clients sort of get that, you know, when they take a, a sort of step back from their experience, even for, for a minute, they begin to see that, you know, I like to call, um, OCD, which uh, Stephen C. Hayes, the creator, the co-creator of that, would call it like the dictator within. So it's, I think that's quite a good sort of analogy. It's almost like if you can imagine someone, you know, continuously like pointing the finger, telling you to do this, don't do that, this will happen, this won't happen. But when we can learn to sort of take a step back and realize, or not even realize, but through, I, I'm a great believer of 
helping people to see through their own experience that the more you listen to the voice of OCD, the more you listen to the dictator within, the more you do what it says. What it's saying is that life will get better, you'll feel better, anxiety will go away and dissipate. But in my experience, and um, when clients take a step back, rather than their life getting bigger, better, life enhancing, their life seems to get smaller. They seem yeah. to nearly go into a cul-de-sac where life just becomes about OCD and responding and doing what it says. So like you said, spending time with family, goes out the window, pursuing their career. It's not happening. Mm. They're maybe not working. They're maybe not doing the things they enjoy because they've been doing the right. And again, I will never say to a client, you're doing anything wrong. You know, if you're scared, if you have a thought telling you to do something, nine times out of 10, people, that's how they live. They respond to their thoughts almost on automatic pilot. But it's only when you take a step back, especially with OCDs concerned, you start to see it, hold on what I'm actually doing here and a vain attempt to actually keep me safe and keep me well is actually maybe making my life smaller, actually making it, you know, harder for me to actually live the life that I want. Yeah, absolutely. It's the vicious, the vicious circle of OCD. Yeah, you're spot on, you're spot on. And um, okay, I have a question for you in regards to kind of when people do start to, to get better, um, you know, something I've noticed in my own journey and uh, other people's struggles is that, you know, you can start to make some improvements. Um, but sometimes when you do, not always, because everyone's different, but sometimes when you do, um, your brain can kind of freak out a little bit because suddenly, you know, you're challenging the thoughts, you're challenging the anxiety, you're not doing what you were just saying before. Yeah, you're no longer just looking for that reassurance. And uh, unfortunately, when we do this, you know, sometimes it can cause, you know, on occasion, more thoughts to spike up, because your brain is obviously, you know, it's habitual, it does what it habitually does. And so if you stop doing that, you can get a bit of a spike sometimes. Is that something that you've come across? I've come across it personally and I've come across it professionally with the, the clients that I work with Rob mm. I've heard it described a bit like um a game probably you would even be familiar with maybe some of your listeners would be as well like whack-a-mole or whack-a-mole it's one of <laughs> one of the two where it's like yeah, you yeah, knock one thing down yeah yeah it's like another thing comes up yeah um, yeah, yeah yeah and in my experience especially in those sort of when you're starting to make progress with an, o- an OCD it's almost a bit like I suppose I would nearly describe it a bit like what's what's happened almost with this coronavirus and when we're getting all these different variants. It's like, you know, I nearly see these different variants as almost like coronavirus is sort of like last sort of last sort of hurrah. It's sort of saying, right, look, I know all these vaccines are coming up. I know that you are trying your best to sort of beat me, but I'm going to keep, you know, these, these different variants are going to keep showing up. I like an analogy in terms of, I think it's a wee bit like OCD, that when we're starting to get better, when we're starting to recover, when we're starting to get our life back, starting to do those things that matter, sometimes maybe an old obsession will rear its head, or maybe uh, a variant of a theme will show up, or maybe even a new one all together. Mm. And I think what's important um, for clients to remember, and I think which, I think, Rob, you know, we all get stumped sometimes, but I think it's recognizing that this approach that you've been using all along, even if it's a new thing that shows up, let's use the same approach. Let's, let's sort of recognize that it's still one and the same. You know, it might say something different. And I think that's where it tries to almost like the, the Wizard of Oz 
scene in the end of this, the film where like the wizard is, is shouting and telling that this is going to happen. And but we actually look behind the curtain, it's just an old man. Um, sometimes I like that analogy with an OCD that it's almost, you know, it's that scared part of you. It's that part of you which really is looking out for you, but actually it's telling you to do things which aren't sort of making your life worse in the long run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You like a good analogy, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of them. <laughs> the, um, yes, I, I, should, I should write a book uh, on something on metaphors or something. <laughs> no, that's really good. It's, I think it really helps to illustrate, you know, what you're talking about. So it's, uh, it's really helpful. And um, thank you. And um, yeah, I mean, when people do have a, a setback like that, you know, it can feel like you're going back to square one, you know, and um, mm -hmm. I really try to, to kind of tell people that it's not at all because, you know, the progress that you make, you're, you know, you have made a lot of progress and that's not just disappeared because you've had a setback, you know, like your, your mm -hmm. brain has, has changed, you know, physically changed yeah. as we discussed earlier yeah. and you're not the same person you have a better understanding you've been practicing using these new skills and you've made progress with it but even even though it can still feel like you're back to square one what advice would you give to someone who is kind of you know struggling and, and really feeling like they've you know they've had a big setback yeah. and they're feeling a bit negative yeah I think again um it's a metaphor that comes to mind, Rob, because it's, it's a personal one. Um, I have an 18-month-old son, and he is just for the past maybe month or so, two months, he has begun walking. Um, and in terms of walking for him, that was a process of fall down, get up again. Fall down, get up again. Now, this is child I've never seen this before in action role but I think it's a really good analogy in terms of you know when you do fall when you do make a mistake when things don't work out when maybe your OCD is flaring up again it's about getting ourselves back up again you know as you said not seeing that fall as something that you're a weak person or that oh I could never get over this OCD anybody who's successful that I know of I've used the analogy of walking of my kid learning to walk, but for him to do that, there was a lot of falling. There was a lot of getting back up again. And I don't see that as a negative thing. I see that as him building resilience and building character and building the skill of walking. I know that Michael Jordan would often have said that, the very famous basketball player, you know, that he'd missed so many times, but that's what made him successful. Yeah. You know, and there's a, you'd probably be familiar with him as well, Kelly Wilson, Rob, uh, in the acceptance and commitment therapy world. And he would often talk about that actually, you know, part of this journey is that sometimes if it's for a minute or for a day, you know, you might, you might slip off the bandwagon. You know, people in the health and fitness regime, you know, have probably experienced that as well when maybe they've had a cheat day or maybe they've had a real urge for ice cream and they sort of fall back off the wagon. I think any good coach is about helping people get back on the wagon again, help people to actually get back on track. And me personally, I don't see a slip as a failure. What the advice, I suppose, to answer your question, I went a long about way about doing it. It's about learning from maybe what we've did wrong or what we've did, 
you know, which has sort of exacerbated our problems and actually picking ourselves up again and just trying again the next day or the next moment for the next hour. And I think that, you know, rather than beating ourselves up, I'm a big believer as well in self-compassion, Rob, where, you know, I've experienced a lot over my life, the almost imposter syndrome or that harsh inner critic, which is continually telling you that you should have done this or you should have done that. But try and be easier. Self, try and um, not not treat yourself so harshly when at times if, if you do make a, a mistake or if OCD does get worse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really good advice. Really good advice. Great. And if you if you could actually only give though one piece of advice for uh, OCD and uh, and anxiety, you know, from your experiences and from your you know from your practice, you know, what would that what would that advice be? I suppose um, I suppose that, that's a big question, <laughs> Rob. Uh, but I, I will do, do my best uh, to answer it. Um, I suppose what, what I would say is that your, your thoughts and, and those urges to, to ritualize so seriously. You know, I think what happens with a lot of clients, and myself personally, I'm sure you've had this rob with yourself and your own clients, is that when this stuff shows up very quickly, it becomes like, the be all and end all it's all we can see it's we feel like we have to act on it we feel like we have to respond in some sort of way for me one of the biggest um shifts in my life was helping me to not take this stuff so personally to sort of see this stuff that shows up in my body as like a false alarm you know and when you start to see it in that way when you start to see that you know what this is not actually worthy or necessary to give this all my time and energy that actually this idea that I have that I need to go and wash my hands again or I need to say these numbers in a certain way, when you start to see that as a, as a false message, as a false alarm, that, that's a real game changer because that gives you room to then do something else. Mm, yeah. you know, And it helps you just feel less alone, feel less isolated. So big question. So to, to redirect your attention onto to what matters, to redirect it to your values, get into your body, out of the head and, and be present with what matters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, Rob. And I know that's not easy. And for maybe for many listeners, it's like, oh, that's okay for you to say that. But I suppose what I would say, and Rob, you can say the same, is that you've been there wore the t-shirt. And we we know that that a lot of the stuff that we talk about works yeah. and, and is beneficial. Yeah, that's great. Um, Paul, thank you so much for your time. It's been, you know, it's been wonderful talking to you. You're clearly someone, you know, who really lives your work and, uh, you know, you're clearly very interested in this and uh, it's, uh, it really shines through when you're, when you're speaking about it. So thanks a lot for your time. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure, Rob. And, uh, and if people want to get in touch with you, can you just uh, remind, remind us how they can do that, please? Absolutely. Um, so my website is www.befreefromocd.com. Um, my Instagram page is at befreefromocd. Um, you can also contact me via email. It's paul.mccarroll, M-C-C-A-R-R-O-L-L, at befreefromocd.com. Um, any of those methods um, are, are fine to, to make contact with me, and uh, I'll endeavor to, to, to get back to you. Fantastic. Many thanks. 
Please remember, if you are struggling with OCD and anxiety, you can get a free consultation uh, with me. All you need to do to get that is to head over to my website, www.robertjamescoaching.com and uh, send me a message and we, we can sort that out. And if you like, you can also follow me on Instagram uh, at Robert James Coaching UK. Many thanks. And now just a quick reminder of my disclaimer. Any information that you view on my website, Instagram page, Facebook group, or anywhere else online, or any information that you listen to on the podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical or mental health advice from a doctor, psychologist, or any other medical or mental health professional.